Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. On the show this week, BP fails to complete its share swap with Rosneft, the Russian state oil champion. Rosneft slammed the door on extending the deadline uh, for talks any further beyond midnight on Monday. It said it was fed up with talking with BP's Russian partners, TNKBP. Does Britain's energy policy stack up? It is quite a large cut. In fact, some analysts that we were talking to yesterday are saying that the government so far has barely begun to introduce the sort of policies that are going to be required for energy companies to reach these targets. As oil prices drop, we ask, is this a temporary blip or a long-lasting correction? I think it's a correction of sorts because certainly the markets have been running high and scared. For all the political instability, concerns about additional and further instability, and the unknown about when will Libya settle down. And your comments. Probably the story that's gained the most interest, I think, from our readers has been a slightly quirky story from WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks came out with some of their diplomatic cables showing just how suspicious some of the Arctic countries have been of each other's intentions uh, in this region of the world. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show with BP. BP's $16 billion proposed share swap with Rosneft lapsed at midnight on Monday. The company announced on Tuesday that the agreement was off and had been unable to agree a buyout of its Russian partners in its existing joint venture in Russia, TNKBP, in conjunction with Rosneft. Joining me on the line to discuss this is Catherine Belton, the FT's Moscow correspondent. Catherine, can you update us on what's been happening this morning? Yeah, this morning, Rosneft suddenly issued a statement saying that it, it had received some fresh proposals for cooperation in the Arctic uh, from BP. And that happened basically pretty much after Rosneft slammed the door on extending the deadline uh, for talks any further beyond midnight on Monday. It said it was fed up with talking with BP's Russian partners, TNKBP. Rosneft also came out yesterday, didn't they? They said that they would look at offers from other oil companies, including Exxon, Shell and, and Chevron. Are they, by broadcasting this second proposal from BP, are they, are they just sort of playing off, off the companies against each other in, in, in an attempt to get the best deal? Or do you think that they are still very keen on BP as their preferred partner? I'm sure they'd still really want to do a deal with BP because even though they could potentially pursue cooperations with other uh, global oil majors, really only BP is in a position to offer it a share swap, which is the real prize for Rosneft. Rosneft really wants to be integrated with a, a global company. It wants a, a, a seat at the table. And other oil companies like Exxon, Chevron, or or Shell um, probably wouldn't offer them the share swap. I mean, BP was targeted because it had been so weakened following the Gulf of Mexico disaster. So it probably still wants to do something with BP, but it's not clear. Rosneft has tons of licenses to develop deposits all over the Arctic. It was the, the ones that were part of the BP 
alliance proposal were ones in the in the Kara Sea, and it's not clear whether the fresh proposals from BP are for that those specific licenses or whether there are new ones entirely. So, I mean, Rosneft, I was told yesterday, now has licenses to develop 45% of the deposits Russia has across the Arctic Sea. So it really can pursue multitudes of agreements with, with all kinds of companies that probably it still wants BP because it wants the share swap. Is it not unusual for a state company like Rosneft to not get its way um, in discussions with what are private investors invested in TNKBP. I mean, you know, is, is that a sort of does that a sort of signal a shifting in the Russian landscape? I think it does signal a quite a bit of a shift. People we were speaking to yesterday were saying they don't think this could have happened two or three years ago. I think essentially Friedman has been able to play a, a very clever game as, as rivalry intensifies at the top of Russia's political elite. There's a very clear rivalry now emerging between Medvedev, the Russian president, and Sechin, who'd always been a right-hand man of Vladimir Putin, the prime minister. And really, maybe the whole, the whole outcome of what happens with BP's Russia gambit could hinge on what happens between Medvedev and Sechin. OK. All right. No, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Let's move on to the UK and its energy policy. Joining me in the studio are David Blair, the FT's energy correspondent, and Polita Clark, the FT's environment correspondent. Now, we've had two big announcements from the UK government in the past two days a fourth carbon budget where the UK has committed itself to tough new carbon reduction targets, and an interim report by the government's chief inspector of nuclear installations on the lessons to be learned from Japan's nuclear crisis. Polito, I just wondered if you could tell us what was in the fourth carbon budget. Well, basically, the, the budget, these are these um, five-year ceiling figures that are uh, announced as uh, part of the 2008 Climate Act. The government's uh, committed to putting these before the parliament. They've already done the first three, and uh, legally they had to come up with the fourth one before the end of June, actually. So this is what Mr Hewn announced yesterday, and what he did announce was that the UK will cut its greenhouse gas emissions by half from 1990 levels for the period from 2023 to 2027. But to put it in context, this does put the UK well ahead of the EU collectively, which has so far only signed up to a 20% reduction in emissions from 1990 levels by 2020. So we've got the UK committing to a large cut, but well into the 2020s. It is quite a large cut. In fact, some analysts that we were talking to yesterday are saying that the government so far has barely begun to introduce the sort of policies that are going to be required for energy companies to follow to reach these targets. And more wind farms, new nuclear reactors? Well, even more, they're saying that you're going to have to have mandatory carbon capture and storage for all major utilities. You know, this is so far that we, we haven't even begun to do this yet. It's still a, a relatively unproven. Massive switch to both new nuclear and renewables, nationwide switch to biofuels, electric vehicles, you know, a really large amount of change needs to come for these targets to be met. Uh, and David, can I bring you in on this point? I mean, Peter's talking here about new reactors being built. How likely is that to happen given today's report on lessons learnt from Japan? Today, uh, Dr. Mike Waitman, who's the uh, chief nuclear safety inspector in the UK, has issued his interim findings from his study of what happened in Fukushima and its lessons for the UK. 
And some of those recommendations uh, have a direct bearing on the programme to build new nuclear power stations in this country. For example, Recommendation 11 says that the nuclear industry, industry should ensure that safety cases for new sites adequately demonstrate the capability for dealing with multiple serious concurrent events induced by extreme off-site hazards. So they're going to have to take additional steps And that may well lead to a delay in what is already a very exacting timetable. And this is extremely important for what Polita has just been describing, because if we even have a a pretty small delay in bringing new nuclear reactors online, that will reduce our chances of hitting these very ambitious carbon emission reduction targets that now have legal force. So what's your sense of where we are in terms of UK energy policy? I mean, we seem to have quite a bit going on at the Department of Energy. It looks like we're not going to meet, certainly, the the new nuclear targets or the nuclear targets. I mean, does the energy policy sort of stack up or is this the sort of year of delivery, as some of the executives are saying, and we'll know more by the end of the year? The companies want this to be the year of delivery, but the problem is the government has placed itself under enormous pressure. There's, the government has given itself so many different tasks it's very hard to see how they can all be accomplished on time. So, for example, in the next few weeks, the Department of Energy and Climate Change should bring out a white paper specifying exactly how it proposes to reform the UK's electricity market, which is a key element of meeting the targets that Polita has described. Then it has to pass the necessary legislation. Along the way, it has to complete the licensing procedure for the new nuclear reactors that we're supposed to have in this country. And then the companies will have to take their final investment decisions on whether to actually come up with the vast sums that are required to build our new nuclear reactors. And they will have to do that next year. So all those steps will have to be accomplished really in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. And speaking objectively, it's hard to see how that will happen. It's not impossible. But I think we're all entitled to be sceptical. Thanks very much, Polita and David. Let's move on now to the oil markets and the recent drop in prices. On Tuesday, David, you spoke to Dr. Joseph Stanislaw, the independent senior advisor of energy and sustainability for Deloitte, about the markets. Yes, and I started by asking him whether he thought the recent fall in oil prices was a temporary dip or a more long-lasting correction. It's hard to call it a temporary blip because it's a temporary drop. I'll just change the language. I think it's a correction of sorts because certainly the markets have been running high and scared for all the political instability, concerns about additional and further instability, and the unknown about when will Libya settle down and when will production come back and could that spread. So there was a lot of foam in the price, very heated and very uh, high. But it has dropped off because supply and demand is basically saying there's plenty of oil and demand is uh, weak. It is growing in some countries, but there are threats around the world that maybe Chinese growth is slowing, concerns about Chinese inflation. You see what's happening in the United States demand and European demand. So people are sitting back and saying, you know, what's going on here? There is plenty of supply. We also realize that now with Libya, there's no major disruption to the oil market. It's been accommodated. So the price is getting back down into more, what I would call, realistic range, the 110 plus are higher, it was very high, down where we are now, depending on whose crude you use, WTI or or Brent, you're in a more uh, realistic playing field for prices with respect to basic supply and demand. So psychology, a lot of the heat of that psychology has been taken out of the market. Does this take the pressure off OPEC? Do you think it makes it far less likely that OPEC will be under significant pressure to act when they meet in Vienna on June 8th? Definitely, it takes pressure off OPEC to have to act. You know, they acted at the beginning of these uh, the turmoil in North Africa and the Middle East, saying we're prepared to provide more oil if needed. And if the price gets too high, they're concerned about demand. They're concerned about demand being destroyed. 
it happens very quickly. The man can run off and just disappear. But it takes some of the pressure off because all that they've been saying is the price is too high, it's coming into, into reality. As they say, all these other factors we're looking at saying, let's look at the fundamentals more. Again, we know that the market has accommodated and lived with the Libya disruption. And it basically just says, we're more realistic playing field. OPEC doesn't need to act any further than currently have. And they're prepared, and they will say at the meeting, that if something changes, we're prepared to act. And that means Saudi Arabia is prepared to act. On Saudi Arabia, the IEA figures show that Saudi Arabia hasn't really increased its output very much in the last few months, perhaps as little as 200 or so thousand barrels a day. Is that a surprise, given the rhetoric that came from Saudi Arabia at the onset of the Libyan crisis and their reassurance that they would supply the market? I don't think it's a surprise. I think Saudis, better than anyone, know the demands and the call on their crude oil and they know the demands and call on OPEC's crude oil. And they certainly were seeing a situation where there was plenty of oil in the marketplace. No one was going short. Uh, and thus, yes, they said, we will go to whatever lengths we need to to stop the price from rising too much. But the realization comes into play that sometimes when you do that, the price goes higher. The market is slightly perverse in its behavior. They get more worried if you say, oh, they're producing a lot more oil. That may make us more concerned and more worried about supplies. So I think they played it quite well. Who knew when that correction uh, may come into play from the heat uh, of the psychology? And it has come into play. But the reality is they made the statement, and we all know that if it had gone higher, they would have come in more. That's the reality. And then the fundamentals settle in a bit more, see how things play out. Then do I put more in or not? And I think they played it quite well, actually. The market psychology is very complex. Thanks very much, David. And finally, Kieran Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Kim, what's been going on in terms of the discussions online? Well, we've had a, a few different themes this week, one of which has been the big oil executives who were called in to Washington to plead their case on uh, the level of tax they pay. There's been a proposal going through Congress to cut the amount of tax breaks that the oil and gas industry gets over in the US. And the top oil execs have been over there arguing why this shouldn't happen and seem to have been successful. Latest news on that is that that bill seems to now have been blocked. Uh, it's unclear what the next stage for that is. But uh, Sheila McNulty, our, our reporter over in Houston, wrote earlier this week about how actually the industry already plays quite high effective tax rates. I think they're close to 50% for the major oil companies compared to 30% uh, for other companies in different sectors. Of course, the uh, the point that politicians will make is that they also make huge profits, particularly when the oil price is high as it has been. And is, is there much sympathy for the oil companies from Readers? Uh, no, some particularly in the industry absolutely back up this point that they're paying high taxes and that anything higher will mean that they can't make the investment decisions uh, that they plan to make. Also that uh, Barack Obama has been uh, talking a lot recently about energy security. So if they're going to take investment decisions on risky plays, say out in the deep water in the Gulf of Mexico, they need more support from government, not higher taxes. But in general, I think our readers think that, hey, look, they're making massive, massive profits right now. They can probably afford to pay a little bit extra in tax. 
probably the story that's gained the most interest, I think, from our readers. It's been a slightly quirky story from WikiLeaks. And this came out on on the day that Hillary Clinton met with uh, foreign ministers from Arctic nations to talk about uh, Arctic oil drilling. Uh, and WikiLeaks uh, came out with um, some, uh, some of their diplomatic cables showing just how suspicious some of the Arctic countries have been of each other's intentions uh, in this region of the world. And there's been all sorts of talk about the mil- increased militarization in that that region and uh, one of these cables talks about carving up the arctic and asking the us to stay out so that they can all get on with doing that so it doesn't look great for any of these countries and uh, our readers have uh, have absolutely picked up on that i think one of them called this a, a, a confederacy of rogues so i think that pretty much sums up the general opinion of uh, some of these countries okay thank you and if you'd like to have your say log on and post a comment on energy source and that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Catherine and Moscow, David, Polita, Dr. Stanislaw, and of course, Kieran. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.